Welcome once again to the Rock and Roll Research Podcast. I am Matt Valley, and I share the super cool side gigs and past lives of the market researchers and insights pros that you've come to trust. So today I am really excited to welcome Randy Hill to the program. Welcome, Randy. Hey, Matt. Happy All to be right. here. Thanks. I'm really happy to have you here. So Randy is based in Dallas, Texas, as am I. And he is in Global Brand Insights at Cargill. And we met a few years ago, I think, uh, in that capacity up there at the Cargill headquarters in Minneapolis. Uh, later on, we got to talking and I learned that Randy is a fellow drummer just like me. But, <laughs> but Randy really, really went for it. I mean, really went for it. If you think about in the 80s, where was the place to be if you were a drummer? It was LA, right? So... <laughs> So Randy's got a story to tell, and I'm really excited to hear that one. So, um, so yeah, welcome once again, Randy. Oh, thanks, Matt. Yeah, and hopefully, you know, there will be there won't be too many secrets that I don't want my kids necessarily to know about <laughs> on, on this one. But no, just yeah, pleasure, uh, pleasure to be here. Thanks, appreciate that's, it. That's up to you, Randy. You know, it's your show. So. <laughs> All right, all right, let's get started. So let's let's start with your career and insights. Tell us how you got here and uh, yeah. go for it. Yeah, I appreciate it. Yeah, you know, it's kind of interesting. It's probably uh, a lot like others, you know, you don't, I don't think we wake up, right? We woke up at six years old and said, you know what, I wanna be a statistician, you know, or <laughs> or something like that. You know, I'm kind of always been a bit of a scientist at heart whether, you know, I was looking up at the stars through telescopes or binoculars or, you know, cracking open rocks, kind of seeing what's inside. I've always been interested in what's in there and how did it get there? You know, and it's not unlike insights, what's inside a, you know, a stakeholder or consumer's head. How did it get there? How do we, you know, how do we, uh, you know, inform it? How do we, you know, change it? How do we, how do we uh, modify? How do we, you know, how do we, uh, uh, you know, help them understand, you know, sort of our perspectives and things like that. So, you know, I went into the Air Force right out of high school from 81 to 85, and I got married in 83. And through that, you know, just kind of growing and those kinds of things, um, I was playing in some some bands up in North Dakota and, uh, and uh, things like that. But we moved to Los Angeles um, in October of uh, – 1987, I was in ad sales. And, you know, I kind of, I was, we would get these media kits, you know, these with charts and stuff on it to help us when we're selling our ads, like to just be a better salesperson. You know, I'm more informed. So when I'm talking to potential uh, advertisers and clients, I can, I can tell them about our readership. Sure. But to be honest, I was really more interested in those charts, right? Mm -hmm. Again, it kind of goes to the scientist in me. I was like, well, I mean, that's all really cool that I can tell my clients about the readership, but I'm really more interested in how did, how did they do that? So that was my first kind of introduction to the concept of using data and analytics and insights and things. And so that was, you know, 33 years ago, I guess. Mm -hmm. um, and then if you fast forward 10 years later, I'm at a company, I'm a QA analyst in customer relations you know, and I was, I was really starting to use data for like process improvement and customer sat improvement, things like that. I went back to school. 
uh, in my early 30s. I got my BBA in marketing at 36, and I got my MBA wow. at 40. Awesome. So, you know, I was, I was kind of kicking around, you know, quite a, doing quite a few different things. Um, but, you know, using data for decision making, kind of, you know, just starting to coalesce all of those ideas, probably pushing 30 years ago, 26, 27 years ago, um, when I was in school, I, I learned that I loved stats. I had no idea, right? I mean, I, I was scared to death in my first stats class. And you kind of go, huh, well, this is kind of cool. And then yeah. business calculate, calculus, and all these things started really like coming to me in a way I, I didn't know about. Never been exposed to it, you know, in the sort of traditional sense of stats. Sure. So I got into my first market research class during my BBA program. And, you know, I had been doing quite a bit of analysis at that time, but just more and more getting deeper into market research. And then, you know, I just told my wife one day, I said, you know, I'm just kind of kicking around. This seems like it could be a good place to actually like make a living. You know, this was probably, you know, early to mid nineties. And so right. um, I kind of made the switch, was working at a company sort of in customer relations, sort of in market research. And I, I, be, I got my very first market research analyst title probably in, 95, 96, something like that. So I've spent about 17 or 18 years on the agency supplier side. And I guess, you know, eight to 10 of that on the corporate side. So again, you know, you can just see this crazy, you know, uh, you know, sort of, you know, one side of the road to the other, uh, kind of in the ditch sometimes, you know, trying <laughs> to get to, to where I'm at. But, I, you know, I kind of landed in a career field that sort of, fits the scientist, fits the strategist, you know, that fits the analyst, you know, all of those different things. It's a, it's been a really great, uh, great living and, a, you know, fits my personality really well. Now that's, it's a great story. I just love how you were able to navigate to this industry as sort of a third career, if you will. Uh, yeah. Navigate's a really strong <laughs> word. <laughs> kind of floating around in the ocean without a sail is, you know, but, but it, but, but yeah, you know, to some extent you just, it's, again, it goes back to discovery, right? Yeah. Is you just, as you live your life, if you're paying attention, right? You, there's these ways that you can just sort of allow things to wash over you. You discover, you, you know, you sort of take that in um, and it can really have a profound impact. And it's not unlike what we do with our clients, right? Yeah. We kind of yeah. hope our insights wash over them and, and help their business, right? So. Exactly. Uh, exactly. It's it's been great. Cool. So th so this is career three. Career one was the military. Yeah. The military. Yeah. Yeah. I guess so. Yeah. 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 Probably so. Yeah. And yeah, then so. in between there, actually, out of the Air Force, I was I was managing a pizza restaurant. I was ma managing a Hastings record store in Houston. I was Fun. then I was in ad sales. You know, <laughs> it's uh, crazy. All right. So so. You talked about, you glossed over, you glossed over the real story here that I want to talk about. Right? <laughs> so post-military, pre-research, move it to LA. Come on, give us the details here. Yeah, so it's interesting because when I got into, when I went in the military, um, even in basic training, I was jamming with guys, you know, oh, you're a guitar player. Oh, great. So we'd go to the rec center and, you know, we're just, you know, cranking out some Leonard Skinner or, you know, whatever. <laughs> but um, when I went into the, 
free bird yeah <laughs> right exactly yeah so when i when i went up i got stationed in minot north dakota and you know pretty much there's not much to do except work on planes and you know drink beer right and so um i was in probably three or four bands uh, of some kind and sometimes all together um one band one weekend another band another weekend some of the guys in the shops that the guys that i worked with were you know this guy's a keyboard player this guy's a sax player this guy's a guitarist so we'd throw something together and do some country covers and local you know uh uh haunts up in all across north dakota mm -hmm. sometimes even in montana and um you know just a lot of fun um and then i also was at the same time in 84 um, there's this, there used to be, um, a, a major entertainment group called tops and blue in the air force. I don't think they exist anymore. <clears throat> Pardon me, but, um, TAC and Mac, which are, are air commands in the air force had always been put, putting forth people for tops and blue, um, auditions, but SAC, which where I worked, the strategic air command never did. So in 84, um, there was a lady I had met who was, um, the director of a small review, sort of almost like a vaudeville review show in in Minot, she was asked to direct the Strategic Air Command Showcase Band. So through my connection with her, I auditioned and I got that gig. And it was really cool because we were touring all over the Northern Tier SAC bases, um, you know, putting on shows for, um, you know, officers clubs and, and the enlisted and things like that. Sure. And that gave me a really good taste of like, Hey, you know, I think I kind of like this, yeah. you know, you play at these rec centers, you know, and there's, yeah, I mean, they're not big, but you know, for the time there are four or five, 600 people maybe. And, you know, in these, the, this was a variety show. So we had, you know, jugglers and we had dancers and we had comedians but like, you know, the band was in, was in the thick of all of that. We're playing, I'm playing, I might be playing a waltz one minute and then a Michael Jackson tune the next minute yeah. and then a wham tune the next minute. So really varied. We had like eight or 10 piece uh, band with horns and stuff. So it was a really cool uh, show. So when we got out of the Air Force, so I met my wife there. She was also in the Air Force. We got out, we moved back to Houston and I immediately uh, hooked up with some bands in Houston to play. And we lived in Houston for a couple of years. Um, one of the bands I was in, we won the Battle of the Bands in Houston. And then, wow. um, you know, I kind of just got, you know, I was, I was, I was feeling the burn, you know, like <laughs> these guys aren't, I mean, they're great musicians. In fact, some of them I'm still friends with today, 30 something years later, but I had a burn in me that I don't think they did. So mm -hmm. my wife and I were like, well, we're young. Let's get the heck out of Dodge and let's go to L.A. So we, I had a high school friend, a childhood friend who lived in LA. So we went out, we kind of visited him. We're like, well, all right, let's do this. So we just packed up and, and moved and got ourselves an apartment uh, in Encino. And, you know, I played, I, I you know, uh, you know, joined a couple of bands again, you know, this, the whole, like you were saying at the top of the conversation, I mean, the place is just you can't even bump into somebody who isn't, you know, an aspiring actor, actress, musician, you know, producer, something. Yeah. So even the guys I worked with uh, in the jobs that I had were, were musicians. And one, you know, again, it's kind of like what I did in Minot. One weekend I'm playing with a cover band. Another weekend I'm playing with a heavy metal band. 
another weekend I'm playing with another sort of Bob Dylan-ish kind of band. So just uh, lots of great stuff, Uh, you know, playing up and down the strip, you know, the Roxy and the Whiskey and uh, the Troubadour, the Gaslight, all those kinds of places that you just, you know, that's like we're Van Halen and, you know, and even rolling it further back. All these great musicians had their ghosts were on, you know, were, were uh were painted on the walls there and um you know the doors played at the troupe i mean it's just yeah. a it's something i i just it just i'm really glad uh that my wife was patient enough to go well let's give it a shot see what see what happens so it was a it was a really great experience yeah it, but it can be a hard lifestyle right oh yeah you know i mean at the the what what sort of got me to the end of this was you know, I have these great memories of touring with the SAC band, the Air Force, winning the Battle of the Bands with the Outlets, you know, playing those great haunts in L.A. I studied with guys like Ralph Johnson, right, original mm-hmm. drummer and, and, and still founding member of um, or very close to founding member of Earth, Wind and Fire. Yeah, so amazing. it was just a great, you know, great opportunity. But I have to admit, you know, it started to wear on me. You know, mm-hmm. I just, it was the industry. Uh, you know, I, I met a lot of great people, great musicians, but I think it towards the end, our daughter was born in 91 out there. And I think it just was, I could see the end in sight. You know, um, it wasn't like I was going for that overnight record deal, you know, or any crap like that, but just, right. I, I was, I've always been insightful enough about myself to kind of know that the end is in sight even yeah. if it was a couple of more years and when I played in another couple of bands, we were still trying to build it up. But I, in my heart, I was kind of done uh, by the early to mid mid nineties and just um, uh, more with the industry. Sure. Um, and um, it's, and it can, de- it can definitely be tough, but I wouldn't trade it for anything. You know, I'm kind of glad things ended up the way they did because who knows, you know, I'm like, I was never into drugs or, you know, any kind of crap like that, but mm-hmm. man, I sure was around people who were, Yeah. and you just, you can see where that pathway goes. And back then, right. We didn't have the internet. We, the only real channel of distribution we really had were the record companies. Right. Right. And it was about who you knew, who you didn't know, where you lived. I mean, I lived in the Valley, right. Which was <laughs> on the other side of the Hill from Hollywood. So it's like, Oh right. my God you're a you're a valley dude you know even just things like <laughs> that where you dude. live yeah well where you lived made it you know was important and you're like okay this is just bs you know um and i'm sure that there are a lot of players out there that just never got the right combination of timing and you know hooking it up with the right people yep. um and it just just in and of itself it's a tough business and then you you met you sort of put that or wrap that around the industry and all of its, you know, sort of uh, shortcomings and it, it, yeah, to your point, it can be, it can be really tough. Yeah. Um, It's not for everybody, you know, that's for sure. Well, I think you actually got out at the right time, the early nineties when that, that scene kind of died and gave way to Seattle. So the time was pretty fortuitous. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, I mean, you think you'd like to hope that good music, good guys, and gals will find their way and you know and maybe in my heart i think of that's really true but when you look out at what's really happening or was happening on the music scene that wasn't really always true 
right. you know, some of the best players never even got a shot. Yeah. You know, because it was about connections, um, often more so than like, you know, when you think of Spirit of the Radio by Rush, you know, what's that song really about, right? Glittering prizes and then there's compromises, shatters yeah. the illusion of integrity. And I, I totally, I totally get that. Yeah, cool, cool. I love that song, by the way. Yeah, yeah. So, <laughs> yeah, that's so, a great song. Yeah. So, so you had you had an opportunity to have so many experiences before you uh, entered the insights industry. I'm wondering if there are any lessons or um, things you learned along the way that you've you've brought with you as you've approached this career. Yeah, I mean that's a that's a great question. You know, I think for me. Music and insights kind of bear a remarkable level of resemblance to each other, right? You know, I think to get good at it, you know, they both require a level of tenacity, curiosity, you know, practice, um, you know, you know, discovery, you know, because, you know, music tells a story, you know, and so should our jobs, so should our insights, right? You know, mm -hmm. I think I've always had a bit of a knack for finding that gold. I think you know, in, but just with experience, you learn story structure, right? But that's just like a song. Um, you know, songs tell a story and, and, and so should, you know, our music. And I think there's a, there's a lot of overlap. You know, you have an opening in the beginning, you have bridges, you have transitions, you have breaks, you have endings, right? So there's, um, there's a bit of, of uh, you know, sort of overlap or correlation, I think, between the two. Sure. Um, but I think underneath it, um, this whole idea of constantly digging, constantly improving, practicing, having patience, but underneath that is just this desire to understand mm -hmm. what is driving these things. Um, what, you know, and I, I, I did the same thing, like whenever I was working on my sticking, you know, it'd be like, well, why, you know, why is my left hand? doing this crazy thing that I don't want it to do. So you, you know, using your own insights to improve, uh, you know, through practice. And, and so I think it's all of those traits are applicable. Uh, um, and I think a lot of the experiences I'm, I, you know, I wasn't born with the patience gene. So I think, uh, I think I've had to use a lot of that um, to kind of help me today. I do think it, you, you draw on, and even in my, even in think of this science sort of, you know, uh, pathway that I talked about earlier, mm -hmm. I've actually used that concept to explain like, okay, Cargill's this big company, you know, just crazy uh, complexity. And people say, well, you know, what if a person has a brand experience in one area, how does that impact or what are they thinking about? I'm like, okay, think about a picture see this beautiful painting by Monet or a Picasso. But what happens when you get, when you zero in and you keep getting closer and closer and closer to that picture? So close you use a microscope to look at a, at a paint pixel. You lose the picture, you lose the beauty of that painting, right? But in nature, there's a thing called a fractal that doesn't do that. The more and more you get in closer, closer to that fractal, you continue to see the beauty. So I said, regardless of my mind, regardless of what that touch point is within the brand, they should have that same beautiful view of that picture. So um, if we're seeing, you know, 
sort of uh, depressions in advocacy or, you know, something like that, you know, I don't want to hear excuses that, well, they're getting that from some other part of the brand. I was like, I don't really care. It's, you still should be able to um, kind of have that same natural beauty. And I, and sometimes I draw on some of my own science, you know, uh, experiences and sometimes even my own music experiences to sort of provide analogies or, or anchors for people to understand uh, insights. And uh, that part's kind of neat too. Sure, sure. No, I, I, I love that analogy actually of the, the fractals. Um, so sticking with the Cargill topic real quickly, uh, you mentioned, I mean, it's a huge global organization uh, and you've been there for a few years now. And I'm wondering what are some of the maybe challenges or opportunities you see um, on the insights side, uh, either now or, or in the future? Yeah. Um, you know, I think more broadly speaking, you know, there's probably no surprise, right, that this whole big data AI machine learning thing is is coming into play. That's where a lot of the investment is, is being made in our space. And, um, you know, for me, the the concept that people are going to continue taking surveys on a computer <laughs> kind of seems to be in the autumn of its, of its existence. You know, we're seeing companies out there that are doing pulse surveys on mobile. You know, of course, there's AI applications, um, agile, quick, you know. Um, that said, I, I still think qualitative is going to be important because just like you and I right now, it's very difficult to have this kind of conversation with a machine. Right. It's right. it's personal interactions that are I think are going to still be important to provide richness and depth. But I do think that there's kind of probably going to come a time when like a driver analysis is done through causal effects via AI, you know, where I don't have to go do a survey anymore. Um, in fact, I'm actually piloting that kind of study right now. Um, but when it, so I do think qual is going to continue to be extremely important. You know, it can't, it's just difficult to replace these face-to-face -face interactions, but when it does come to quant, I'm just not sure how much longer sort of collecting this data. So we may think of, and I'm using air quotes, the old fashioned way, <laughs> just don't know how long it's going to last. Right. We've seen plummeting participation rates at the same time, you know, exponentially increasing incentive rates, just trying to get people to take a damn survey, right? So mm -hmm. it's, and we have terrific panel partners. They all do great work, but I just, the overall longevity of this, you know, is in question to me. So then I say, okay, well, then what, what could take its place? What kind of tools can we use? So, you know, I mean, I'm doing a ton of, you know, what we might think of as traditional brand, you know, and reputation tracking types of work. Um, kind of the old fashioned way, if you will, through panels. But I'm also piloting an AI machine learning uh, project around understanding latent factors and drivers that we may not be thinking of and these linkages we may be thinking of or not thinking of. Mm -hmm. And then maybe applying that to our customer engagement data, our Salesforce data, our right. sales enablement data, bringing in bigger uh, chunks of and disparate data that we could just never do um, you know, because AI is going to look at these combinations and billions of them in, in minutes, right? Versus mm -hmm. you and I could do them by hand. We could do three an hour, you know, or something. So we can get to some solutions much, you know, more quickly. Sure. Um, and I'm also piloting a, a kind of a pulse 
way a three question real quick pulse survey on the mobile platforms mm -hmm. um, among consumers to just sort of get some quick which way is the wind blowing on some message concepts for example so mm -hmm. I, we're definitely you know uh, kind of trying to um, you know test the waters when it comes to some of these more agile or more advanced uh, topics because uh, I do think at some point some of these uh, sort of traditional methods of data collection are going to ultimately, you know, go to the dustbin and maybe they should, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's just evolution. Right. Well, knowing you, uh, I'm, I'm not surprised to hear that you're, you know, trying lots of different things and pushing the envelope where you can. Uh, yeah. Even an old dog like me can literally. <laughs> <drink. laughs> yeah. <no. laughs> Absolutely. So, so tell me about any other kind of podcasts or books or other media that you're drawing inspiration from both uh, personally or professionally. Yeah, well, you know, of course, you've probably been able to surmise that I love science. Mm -hmm. um, so literally anything related to that. My Facebook feed, I think I have 30 or 40 different science pages from, you know, from, you know, uh, quantum is weird to physics is weird to, you know, you can name it. But I think I've got to narrow these down to a couple. And I think one of them uh, you and I may have talked about before was Brief History of Time yeah. by Stephen Hawking. Mm -hmm. You know, it's, it's a great way to kind of understand cosmology and, the, and what's really happening out there in the universe in, in a, you know, sort of a layman's way. You know, it's as it doesn't, it, you know, Stephen doesn't go into depth about, um, you know, the theory of relativity. If you want to go read that, it's great. I think anyone who really wants to start to understand the weirdness of the universe we live in, mm -hmm. the best place to start is by re is by reading um, Einstein's transcripts of his theory of relativity, because even not the math, but just the the concepts and the the thought experiment that he went through to get there. But Brief History of Time does a really good job of kind of explaining it more in layman's terms. Yep. Um, there's another one by uh, Werner Heisenberg that I love called Physics and Philosophy. Yep. Um, where, I have that too. you know, it's the concepts. Uh, yeah, again, just kind of, you know, the um, these uncertainty principles and all of these different quantum issues that, and again, it's really a lot of it is just about how you um, embrace what you see in reality with what's really going on at the quantum level. The two just don't jibe, right? You're just like, yeah. what the hell is going on here? You know, it's just some really cool ways to, to think about you know, the worlds around us. But then of course, there always has to be one here for us drummers. <laughs> um, Thank you. There's a, yeah. There's a great book called sympathy for the drummer. Why Charlie Watts matters. Um, it's by Mike Edison and it's just a it's just a blast to read because um, Mike sort of you know kind of brings about some of the um, you know some of the the very colorful um, you know ways to think about um, about rock and roll and and particularly about you know the drummer's point of view mm -hmm. and I think I you know you and I have kind of talked about this but there was a quote. I'll just give you a little snippet. Um, there was a quote uh, from Charlie Watts when he was asked, you know, like, what is a rock drummer? And he's like, 
you know, what the fuck's a rock drummer, <laughs> you know? So this whole book is about, you know, um, the sort of, um, um, and why, and what, and, and the under, the under, the subtitle of this is why Charlie Watts matters is because it brings about the personality and the, you know, in the groove and the function. Um, and there's so much energy there. There's so much, um, you know, and there are going to be drummers from a technical perspective that could blow Charlie Watts away. Right. Probably yeah. you and me both, but there it's unmistakable just like Phil Rudd from ACDC where you have these dirty grungy deep grooves that just make your butt bounce, you know, <laughs> and it, and the importance of that in rock and roll, right? There's mm -hmm. um, it's one thing to be as steady as a, as a tabletop. I'm all in for meter and, and timing and things like this, but when you can make a person's butt bounce uh, and, and you're, you're the drummer and you're the one responsible for that, it kind of, encapsulate kind of what's what's up with rock and roll drummers or at least with rock and roll at its very core yeah. so this book is really kind of a fun read so cool. i would uh i would highly recommend it yeah i love that i love that so um cool stuff you know what's coming now randy uh, <laughs> so hopefully sure, you had a chance sure. to think about it right so you're stranded on the desert island you've got three albums of your choice at your disposal for the end of your days, but only those three, what are they? Yeah, so this one, this one was tough. Um, <laughs> all the others were pretty easy. Um, this one was tough. The, you know, interestingly enough, while I've talked about Rush and Neil Peart and things, he was a huge influence on my playing. Um, when it, you know, I don't want my album choice to think about my drummer choice, because if it was drummers, It'd be Bonham, you know, it'd be Peart, it'd be Steve Smith. I mean, those guys would be on the island with me, you know, till the end of my days. Yeah. But if you're talking about the albums, I have to bring in, you know, all of the other music, the lyrics and the melodies and, and things like this. I'm a very lyrical drummer and a very melodical drummer, I think. So I've got where I landed was a couple of albums by Styx. Um, I know people might be groaning. But I'm not talking about Babe and too much time on my hands and stuff. You know, good songs, fine. But you need to go listen to Castle Walls and, and some of the songs off Pieces of Eight. You know, just some really great musicianship there. A lot of great melodies, great yeah. guitar work. So I, I landed on Grand Illusion and Pieces of Eight as the two albums from Styx. Um, I'm going to go down the funnel here. Uh, another one, again, I talked about the, the grungy – groove work of Phil Rudd, Phil Rudd and ACDC. It's got to be back in black. Nice. Every single time I hear that album, anything off that album, windows are down, sunroof is open, volume <laughs> is at, at full blast, you know, and it's, it's just great stuff. And again, talking about making your butt bounce, right? There's some great stuff on that album. And then, but then you swing to the other end. I'm a huge da Danny Serafin uh, fan in, in Chicago. So their greatest hits one and two, just almost every song on that album has, you know, all of those great horn parts, great guitar work, vocals, the melodies, Danny's drumming is great. So that's really four. And then down on my fifth one, and I get to the three, but the fifth one was <laughs> Sign of the Times by Prince. You know, oh, it's a, yes. Another, yes. Another, du another double album. Just, dude, if you just, guys and gals out there listening, if you've never heard that album, put it on it is still just as it came out in the late 80s it's still just it's 
timeless. It's still just as relevant today when he's talking about, you know, just nine months ago, his cousin was smoking reefer for the very first time. And nine months later, he's doing horse. You know, he's talking about, you know, there's just some, just some great uh, uh, social commentary uh, lyrics in that album. So, all right, that's the five. Okay. All right. So I think I've got to go with, you know, I probably got to go with Grand Illusion from Sticks. Okay. Probably Back in Black with ACDC. Mm-hmm. And because I've got my groove and my grunge and those albums and the lyrics, as much as I'd love to have Prince on the Island, I got to go with the third one's got to be Chicago because it's going to round out the styles. And, you know, when you're in the mood for some horns and yeah. some jazz, you listen to, you know, listen to Chicago. If you're in the mood for a little bit of, hell's bells you got to listen to some acdc very, so, very nice well i noticed good you, stuff there i noticed you didn't say slayer but you're still okay in my book Randy. <laughs> um, I yeah well you, you know one. i mean you know again you know a lot of the a lot of great heavy metal drumming uh uh out there for sure in those in those guys iron maiden slayer yeah. uh megadeth metallica huge lars Ulrich friend you know just uh but when you think about albums you know what i mean and you think yeah. that's again if i could have the drummers um i'd love to have lars on the album or on the island with me but um but yeah really good stuff all right cool well randy this has been uh, a wonderful chat as always i really appreciate your time uh sharing your insights and and talking a little bit of drums here today on the Woo-hoo. rock and roll research yes, podcast you betcha <laughs> so i love that so so thank you so much um and uh yeah yeah we'll talk soon yeah my pleasure matt take care and uh looking forward to to uh hearing and seeing more of the great podcasts and the great uh drummers and musicians uh that you have on your show good stuff absolutely rock and roll randy take care man all All right right, be safe